Well, good morning. Welcome to our Sunday School class. Some of you, your beautiful faces, I saw just 13 hours ago. We were out in that big sanctuary. We watched Calvinist. Marlene, how was it? Was it good? It was really good. It was really good. You heard it from Marlene. That means it's true. So we watched Calvinist. Great movie. Uh, a lot of you guys were there, so that was really cool. One thing I really like about Calvinism is that <coughs> once you see it, it's all over scripture. The doctrines of grace are everywhere. And yet, we wouldn't say that you have to be a five-point Calvinist in order to get entrance into heaven. We do believe it's a faithful expression of the gospel and of God's character, his sovereignty. However, if you but a lot of us are saved well before we come to understand Calvinism. I guess what I'm saying is Calvinism can be all over the pages of Scripture, but you don't necessarily see it right away. Or maybe even you disbelieve that it's there. But it rewards careful study. If you are a student of Scripture, there is so much depth in there, learning about God's sovereignty learning about his goodness, it rewards somebody who wants to get into the deep things of Scripture. And yet, for this, if you are a more simple person, you don't want the deeper things, you just want a simple message, and that's all, there's that there too. And so, if you'll remember, in Augustine, we talked about the fact that Christianity is for both the simple, the lowly, as well as the student and the intellectual. It is, it is simple enough for a child to accept it and deep enough to spend your whole life studying it and still plumbing into its depths. And that idea is the same as the idea of chiastic structure. Not that we're dealing with the same stakes of God's sovereignty over everything. The stakes aren't that high. But there are literary devices in Scripture built into the passages that are there that it's been there your whole life, but you don't necessarily see it until it's shown to you. And then once it's shown to you, it's like, whoa. And then you start plumbing into the depths again. It's like, this is everywhere. Wow, that's highlighting this passage. And it's all organized in a smart, intelligent manner. And... So just as now Calvinism starts popping out to you, the Reformed Doctrines of Grace, this learning about the structures of Scripture and how they are designed through literary devices, it rewards study of it. You get rewarded by learning these types of things. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, this is what I introduced last week, and we will do a brief recap. The goal is to exegete the letter of Philemon. Philemon is incredibly short. It is only one chapter. It is 25 verses. I hope we will read Philemon today, but we will not even begin exegeting a single verse. Because before we even get to Philemon, what I want to get to is that there are letters in the Bible, there are entire books of the Bible, and there are small sections within these letters and books that are arranged in a definite and particular order. And the order that it is arranged in is a chiastic structure, is a, is a important one that is all over. What is a chiastic structure? If you have your notes, if you don't have notes, please grab one from the back. You probably want the big book. 
The little, the single page there is just an excerpt of that if you wanted to keep your notes from last week. Biblical literary structure, chiastic structure. What is a chiastic structure? Literary device used to connect ideas through repeated or reverse ordering. So, I'm just going to go quickly, but chiastic structures are all over ancient works. It's not just the Bible. We find this in other places too. Even the Quran has chiastic structures within it. It is an old way to connect uh, writings that you do. So what does it look like? There's various forms and patterns, but a typical chiastic structure looks... This is a classic. This might be the most classic of chiastic structures. Looks like this. You bring up idea A. I have a dog. And then, oh, I should add this. That represents the reverse of the idea. And then by the time you're done your address, you're mentioning the dog again. These ideas are connected. And then you move on to the next idea. Maybe it's the age of your dog. I have a dog. He is four years old. So I have a dog is idea A. He's four years old is idea B. And then because he is old, he died. Or my dog died. So you're mentioning the dog at the end. You brought up his age. Now you're going to bring up his age again later. And then uh, one day he got sick. That sickness got serious. Um, I really love my dog. That might be the middle idea D there. So in your whole, that's, that's a chiastic structure, what I just gave you. I gave you idea A, I have a dog. He's four years old. He got sick one day. That concerned me because I really love my dog. The sickness got very serious. In his old age, that made it even more lethal. My dog passed away. So you see how everything I brought up on the upswing in the A, B, C, I then bring forth the central idea right here. Idea D is your key axis. Everything that I wrote here, and then on the, on the descend, he, the sickness was serious, uh, he passed away, or whatever I said. Everything on the decline was building up to this axis, really it was descending, and everything from here was ascending up to this key idea, and the key idea that I want you to get out with, I really valued my dog. The point isn't the sickness, the point isn't how old he is, the point is I love my dog. That would be the center of that chiastic structure right there, of that chiasm as a short form. We do we don't do chiasms as much anymore, but this was a purposeful way of writing and structuring a biblical text. Just as, and that's why I brought up the whole Calvinism thing. Once you see it, it's everywhere. Uh, it is like that when it comes to literary structure, particularly chiastic uh, structure. It is all over scriptures. Okay, ABC, but it doesn't have to be this pattern. There's various patterns of chiastic structure. Any questions so far before I move on? I'm not looking, so you can just ask it if you have one. We're good? Okay. So, what is the point then? What is the point of a chiastic structure? I already, I already said it, but what is the point? I want to make sure we get this. There you go. You're getting the key axis. You're getting the central idea. It's pointing it out to you. One of the ways that might help to think about this, why did they write like this? One of the reasons is because in, in ancient works of antiquity, you, write, you wrote on a scroll, for instance. That was a common way to write. And, you know, a, roll, a, a scroll has to be rolled up and it's sealed, and you break off the seal, and you start opening it. And what, do you, what is the first thing that you see? 
it's typically, it'll be the middle, and not every time is the center of a chiasm the middle of the words, but a lot of times it actually is. And so when you unroll it, whatever the central idea, the key axis is, we're gonna be right there. So everything below is pointing up to that in the scroll, and everything above is pointing down to it. So there was like a visual reason for it too, that when you unveil this scroll, you're gonna see what's most important, what the point is of the book right then and there. And the key example of that is the book of Exodus. What is right at the center of Exodus? Remember? Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. There's 40 chapters right at Exodus 20, right at the midpoint of Exodus, the Ten Commandments. The basic law of God that defined how Israel would live, that still is the sentiment of our law today as Christians. It was all pointed to the giving of the law of the covenant God. And everything before it was pointing to it, everything behind it was going up to it, or after it was going up. So it's there, it's on purpose. So it is to highlight hinge points, key axes, central ideas. Also, this is really good because it helped with memorization. They could memorize a lot of things back then. Well, their things were their writings were designed to be memorized. You knew that if you were going, if you were talking about an idea, it's going up. All you then had to remember was everything going up because it's just going to be a repeat on the way down. That makes it much, much, much easier to memorize things. Okay, so it, it's helpful to have an understanding of literary devices and particularly chiastic structure. It'll help you focus on the main point the author is getting across, and it'll make you more attentive to detail, and that might be the underrated benefit of this. There can be a lot of things that you read in scripture, it's like, why is that there? Why do they have to repeat that? Yeah, I saw that already. No, there's a purpose to these details. Sometimes they're fulfilling the downswing of a chiastic structure. Uh, it makes you more attentive to detail. So last week, we, I, I tried to give an example from the Old Testament, a chiastic structure of the flood narrative. If you were here, I had to rush at the end as we were running out of time, but I now have it in writing. I, I asked you to write it down by hand last week, but I printed it out in the bigger booklet here. So you can see how in the flood narrative from Genesis 6 up until Genesis 9, that whole story of the flood is a chiasm. We looked at each detail on the way up, and not every single detail necessarily forms one part of the ladder, but if you take the overall story, it is going into it is a chiasm. And the whole story had its hinge point. Everything changed at chapter 8, verse 1. God remembers Noah. And you were supposed, the author, the original authors of such a writing and for Israel's history were aware of literary devices. This is a common way of writing. We use metaphors a lot. If I gave you a metaphor, you would recognize, oh, I'm not. I'm not being serious that Calvinism is like a waterfall. Once it starts coming down, you, it's like the flood gates just open and you see it everywhere. Like, it's not literally a waterfall. And you know that. We're aware of literary devices. They were too. So, in the flood narrative, everything turned when God remembered Noah. And so, what is the application for everybody in the church age, everybody in all of human history is that idea that the covenant God remembers his people and keeps them. That same phrase, God remembered, in this case, God remembered Noah, shows up two more times in Genesis. Shows up in 1929 and in 3022. And in both those cases, the authors 
or the, the readers are supposed to go back. Oh, everything was, everything was hard. God was judging. There was rain everywhere. God was killing the world. There was no hope. But the covenant God remembers. And then he turns it around. And then that happens again. Later on in the book, God remembers. Everything sucks. But the covenant God is going to keep his people. He loves his people. And then it comes up again later in the book. So that was the key axis. If you, now, you can, you can take those applications without knowing chiastic structure uh, theoretically. But definitely, once we see this definite planned way of presenting it, I think it deeply informs us um, in, a, in a deeper way as to what the main point is and what we can get, get out of it. So in this case, it's helpful because now the flood narrative is not just a story from so many years ago. Now there's something that I can take away from it too, and I'm not reading into the text to get this application. One thing that preachers get themselves in trouble with is they'll try to make the text say what they want it to say. Or it'll have an application from 3,000 years ago, and you're trying to talk as though Moses was writing to you. No, he was writing to those people, and we're supposed to take principles out of it. So by an understanding of chiastic structure, we can see principles more clearly because they're directly highlighted. God remembers Noah. Yes, that had its direct application to Noah, but God remembers his people. That is true all across the Bible, and that is true today. And then we showed how you can get a chiasm from numbers as well. So in that same story, the numbers 7, 40, and 150 were used both in the upswing and the downswing of the chiasm. Now I want to show you a New Testament example. Again, this is all setting up for when we're going to get to Philemon. These are new ideas for a lot of us, so it needs to percolate a little bit. If you turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to make you do some work today. Can't work on the Sabbath. I need to use a different word. Uh, <laughs> chiasm of salvation in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. We have all read this. We all uh, especially as Reformed Protestants, we love these 10 verses. What if I tell you that this is written in a chiasm? Because it is. We're going to see it. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. The word of the Lord says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand hand that we should walk in them. This is a chiasm. Let's start working on it. Um, 
it's going to start with A. We're going to put an A, and down here, I feel like I'm going to need some space. We'll put an A reverse. <laughs> All right. Verse 1, dead in your trespasses and sins. Do we see that repeated at the end there, being dead in the trespasses? Of, I'm not seeing the word alive in there, so... Uh, we're in verse 1 of chapter 2. Maybe let's keep on going. In which you once walked. Walked. We walked in sin. Wait, verse 10 at the end there. For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should what in them? Walk. Look at that. And all of a sudden we're already seeing a, re a repeated idea. Up here we are walking in sin. And that is in 1 to 2a. And down here, we are walking in, I'll say, goodness. Or you could replace that word with a couple other things. I know some of you might not be able to read down here, but walking in goodness. That's at the end of that. That seems to be a pretty clear connection there. Let's do get my B ready. All right, let's keep on going. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Uh, I'm not seeing that. I'm not seeing a connection with that one yet. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Work. Wait, what did we? We already read verse 10. For we, oh, actually, it's already at 9. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay, so back in the beginning, in verse 2, we are doing the work of the devil. But in verse 9, in the first part of 10, it is the work of God. There's the repeat again. So we will have in idea B, the work of the devil. And down here, the work of God. You seeing it so far? Repeat of ideas? Three. Let's get our C here. If I don't think we are... We still have a lot of verses left. We're not at the center of the chiasm yet. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. I'm uh, not seeing body and mind necessarily. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, so verse 3 is telling me that we all, because of our flesh, by nature we do wrathful things. We do bad things like the rest of mankind. All of us, there's, do I have the ability to not do this? Do I have the ability to not be a child of wrath of myself? It seems to be saying that we all in the passions, by nature, like the rest of mankind, my ability is only to do one thing. So we seem to be talking about ability here. I'm only able to do that which is in my nature, which is not very good. Is there the idea of ability? Maybe you're... Eight. You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Okay, so back in verse 3, we're talking about my ability in the flesh, and because of my inability to do something about it, in verse 8, we have the ability of God to give as a gift. 
So back in verse 3, we have the ability of man in the flesh. Ability of man in the flesh. But down in verse 8, we have the ability of God as a gift. Ability of God as a gift. We still have a good amount left here. I'm going to add a D because I don't think we're at the center just yet. Verse 4. But God, but God. Now, I remember back in the flood narrative, everything turned when it said, but God remembers Noah. Sometimes that word but represents a change in everything, and that'll be your center. Given the way that our structure is so far, I'm not so sure that this is one of those times where it represents the center. Let's, let's keep on reading. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Rich in mercy because of the love for us. Uh, what is it? Okay, well, naturally, verse 7 would be where I'm looking now for that connection. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable, what of his grace? Riches. Wait, rich in mercy for immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. And back and four, because of his love for us, now it's his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Okay, that seems like a pretty clear connection right there. We have God's riches to us in four. God's riches to us in four. And we have God's riches to us in seven. That is just a complete repetition. We're still not quite at the center, although we're getting there. We're getting real close now. I'm sensing it. It's almost like I have this prepared. <laughs> Five. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's all we have left. Okay, so we have to decide out of five and six, are we getting at the central idea of E and E reverse? Or does that have to get split up? All right, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So we're, we're, we're dead. We need to be made alive together. And then six, raises us up and seats us in the heavenly places of Christ Jesus. So we're dead. We need to be made alive. Well, he raised us up and seated us with Christ. That sounds like being alive to me. So it actually seems like five, at least that first part of five, and then six, that seems to be a repetition of the same idea. In the beginning... We're dead in our trespasses. He makes us, a level, makes us alive together with Christ. That seems to say that, we, that he gives life in Christ. And the first part of five gave me that idea. I didn't really need the next part of that sentence. And then in six, we have gives life in Christ again. I think we're seeing it now. And it's almost as though Paul explicitly put this one verse right at the center of this chiasm. If you have an ESV Bible, it's even separated by dashes. It's almost like it's jumping out at the page at you. Like we're supposed to see the center of the chiasm. 
Sunday school class, what is the key axis? By grace, you have been saved. There it is. We have it. By grace, you have been saved. Wow. Okay, so did we need chiastic structure to see the central axis of this page? Not necessarily, but I, I left a blank there for key axis. What do you think the application then is of this key axis? If, if the center of what Paul is saying, by grace you have been saved, he's not saying anything else. Like If this is true, then everything that was after it is pointing up to this, and everything before it is pointing down to this. That means there's no more qualification. It's just by grace you have been saved. What is the key axis principle to take out of that? I'm not trying to trick you with a trick answer. To, but salvation, the key axis here, salvation comes by the sovereign grace of God and not by any other means. By the sovereign grace of God and not by any other means. Notice that in, that, in this center chiasm, he's not saying by grace you have been saved and then there's a whole bunch of other words afterwards. It's just that. It's just those, one, two, three, four, those six words. And then you're supposed to fill in those details. That's the principle. By grace, not by other means. That is how we can then take what he writes in Ephesians and apply that principle all over the rest of the church age. We found the axis. We found the principle. Salvation is by sovereign grace and not by any other means. Any questions or comments about this so far? Yeah, Ryan. Maybe I'm not um, quite understanding it, so I guess I could have been... I mean, obviously that seems like it's a central theme, but if you look at 5, it says, by grace you've been saved, and then you look at verse 8 and it repeats it again. You mm -hmm. almost think like that would be the E, and then whatever's between that would be mm -hmm. X, because like if we just looked at the basic, you know, A, B, C, D, you know, C, B, A... You'd say those two things are identical. They must be whatever between those would be the central thing. So yeah, so that is a consideration. The difference in this passage here is that it's actually not saying the same thing. It, although the, some of the words are the same, by grace you've been saved is the first time, but the second time you have by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's not the exact same thing. But secondly, the way that it's talking about it in verse seven or in verse eight. He's using it in a different way than he uses it the first time. The second time, he's saying, you don't have the ability. Uh, he, like The focus is about ourselves and about how this is not our own doing. The understanding it in 8 really comes from the second part. This is not your own doing. Whereas it stands alone in 5. So I do see that you could possibly make a structure combining those, but it seems to me that all of Paul's argument builds up to that hyphenated point, and the second time he says, by grace you've been saved, it's with a different application. That one had to do with ability. At least that's the way, I, that's the way it seems to be. And, but yeah, I do recognize that the repetition there at least can get us thinking that that maybe is on the upswing. But any other comments or questions? On my yacht, Luke and James, it does show that it's bracketed by grace you have been saved. So right in the middle of a sentence, they have a bracket. 
There you go. So, so that tells you in the original composition, in the original writing of this, there was some type of, in, even in the Greek, there was some type of setting out of that one idea in the midst of these 10 passages or 10 verses. Okay, so that's really cool. I, I love this type of stuff. I know I'm a nerd, but I, I love this. I think we are ready to read the letter of Philemon. If you could please turn to Philemon, it is right before Hebrews, and it is after Timothy and Titus. We are going to read this. I'm going to attempt to show you as much of this chiasm in Philemon as possible, and then that'll probably take the rest of our time. Before we even read this, I want to tell you, once again, the entire letter of Philemon is in a giant chiasm. Just like we see in Ephesians 2 here, just like we see in the flood, this time it's not just a section. The entire letter is built in a chiasm. And I have that printed for you on page 4 of your notes. The letter of Paul to Philemon. Are we all there? All right. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant or as a slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. 
Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 25 verses. There's Philemon. Isn't that a beautiful letter? I love that letter. We are going to exegete this letter. It is going to take us some time because it is going to be a deep dive exegesis. So even though it's only 25 verses, we're not going to be doing this in like two, three weeks. It's going to take some time. But today our consideration is not to exegete any verses, but to see the structure. There is a chiasm. Just even as we read it, did you hear any repetition of ideas at all? Even the repetition of certain words? I'm just going to present the chiasm that you have on page four of your notes. So it begins with salutations. And I, I really like that word, salutations. We even have, um, in the French language, this goes back to Latin, but in the French language, the word salute or salut. You can use that word to say both hi and bye. You can use it in both of those contexts, and depending on the context, you know if you're saying hi or bye. So we begin with salutations. He's saying hi in verses 1 through 3, and so this is the easiest part of the chiasm. He's saying bye at the end. He's saying salut there at the, at the end. So 1 through 3, we get salutations, and 23 through 25, we get salutation. That's the easy part. And then he goes in verse 4, and he's stating that he prays for Philemon. He prays for him. Well, what went on in verse 22 there? I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. So now, Philemon is supposed to pray for Paul. Interesting that it both starts and ends with the same idea of prayer. And then in verses 5 through 7, uh, Paul is going to go on and talk about his love, talk about his faith, talk about the hospitality that he has shown the saints, how he has been refreshed. Well, back in verse 22 again, right before he talks about the prayers, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. He's asking for his hospitality. You've shown it to other people. The word's gone out, how you've been hospitable, and now prepare a room for me, he says at the end. The idea of hospitality is both early in the letter and near the end of the letter. And then in verse 8, accordingly, I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Does Paul have the authority to command people to do things in the Lord? He absolutely has that authority. He's an apostle. The Lord wrote scripture through him. Well, he kind of gets that idea out again in 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing you will do more than I say. He's getting to that idea of obedience again. You'll do more than I say. Connecting that idea of obedience. He could use his authority, although he could ask for obedience in 21. There's that idea of authority again and obedience. <coughs> and then in 9 and 10, but he doesn't want to use that. He doesn't want to force Philemon to do something. For love's sake, I'm going to appeal to you. I'm going to make supplication. I'm going to... I'm going to present a request. I'm going to appeal to your heart. I'm going to appeal to your mind, appeal to your Christianity. I'm appealing to your goodness. That you're, I'm going to make supplication. And back in verse 20. 
I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul is making supplication again to Philemon. I want this. Refresh me in Christ. Supplication. There's that idea again. Number 10. This is where it starts getting really cool. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. That is not talking about literal, like he didn't beget him. It's spiritual. He became a spiritual father to him, converted him. Onesimus was a convert of Paul's even after he escaped. Well, what goes on in 19? I, Paul, write this in my own hand, I'll repay it, to say nothing of your, your owing me even your own self. What's that talking about? Oh, even Philemon is a convert of Paul's too. Just as Onesimus is, so is Philemon. They're both converts of Paul. They're both indebted to him. He made a convert of both of them. And it's funny how it shows up right after each other like that in the perfect part of the letter to be building this chiasm. Repeat of the idea. And then in verse 11, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. Paul has made Onesimus profitable. He used to not provide much value. He was no good, good for nothing. Well, now he's got some value to him. He's bringing in his, he can bring in some income. He can be a value to, uh, to a master. And what's going on in 18, that idea of like money and, and value. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. There's the money idea again. He was useless, now he's useful, but I'll pay everything that he owes. The idea of money. Paul made Onesimus profitable. Paul will repay any wrong that Onesimus has done. That's the connecting idea there. Verse 12. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. We'll talk about the interpretive difficulties there. The literal is like, I'm giving you my bowels. It's like the literal. Like, hey, I'm giving you my bowels. Like we don't, you, we don't talk that way. That's kind of strange. So we interpreted it as heart. I think, Tony, what does your, your King James say there? In, in the end of 12. Oh, yours even says heart too. Some of the older translations even say bowels. I, just was, in, I was curious about that. So he's saying, receive him as my own heart, as my own insides you are to take him. And then down in 17, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. The idea of receiving as myself. You would take me in if I came as the same as you would bring, take in Onesimus. I'm sending him back to you, sending my heart. And so if I'm your partner, receive him as you would receive me because I'm sending my heart. Sending, receiving. <clears throat> receive him as his own heart in the idea of R. And then on S13, this is where we're really getting hot here. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Paul retains Onesimus as his own minister in the bonds of the gospel. That is, he is helpful to Paul. I, want, I would love for him to be with me because he is such a benefit to me. But the way that he is retaining him is not as a servant. 16. No longer as a bond servant. We need to replace that word with slave, by the way. This... This idea of bondservant is modern translations. This goes back all the way to the King James. They take that word doulos, which means slave. 
and they try to soften it by making it say servant. ESV does a little better by saying bond servant. Sometimes they actually do use the word slave, but this is direct mis misinterpretation, mistranslation. It's saying slave. It's not saying you're just a servant. A servant signs up for a job. If they're not getting paid enough, they can leave their job. The conditions are such that it's almost a volunteer basis in a way. It's not the same for a doulos. This is a slave. Anyway, we'll talk about that when we exegete it. So, Paul retained him as a minister in the bonds of the gospel, but he didn't retain him as a servant, as a bond servant, as a slave, but more than that, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and of the Lord. So he wants to retain him, but he doesn't want to retain him as a slave. He's like a minister to me. He's of benefit to me, of spiritual benefit. There's that connecting idea. And now we get to the center of the chiasm. And I'm not going to give you the principle of the key axis yet. I think this is going to be a cool part. I want you to write, after we read this again, what you think the key axis is, what the principle is that you're getting out. And we'll see by the end of this book, I want you to look back at what you wrote and see how accurate it was and, and all of that. So at the very center is T and T reverse, 14 and 15. But I preferred, this is like the whole center of what he's talking about. I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. There's T, and now we're going to do T reverse, which is basically the same idea, just going down. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. There's your center. There's the middle of your chiasm. What do you think the key axis, the key principle is there? I want you to take 30 seconds and try to write down what you think it is. And then we'll close in prayer. Be bold. As we're getting ready to close, any final question? We only have about a minute. Any final question or thought about any of this chiastic structure, literary devices, arguments, key axis, any thoughts, comments, questions? A lot of, a lot of you wrote down something? If you didn't, it's fine. <laughs> All right. So that is chiastic structure in Philemon. I do have another structure to show you next week before we get into exegeting this thing. So still come with your Bibles, but uh, yeah, I'll show you something really cool next week. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your scriptures. I thank you that we can be plumbing the depths of these words for the rest of our lives and still be benefiting, getting value. I thank you that you inspired these words. You inspired these letters. Would we be honorable students of this book and of the teaching of it? Lord, provide us all that we need in order to understand your word too. Prepare our hearts now for the worship service. Amen.